by the way, if you're not getting the uh, Shmooz podcast, you can get the Shmooz in a number of different uh, a number of different formats. Now you can get it on any wherever you get your podcast. Is the you just type in the Shmooz T H E S H M U Z if it's Google Play or if you get uh, wherever you Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, you can listen to the Shmooz podcast. You could also get the Shmooz app. That's for iPhone as well as for the uh, for the Android. In addition to which, we have, of course, the uh, the Shmooz site, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z. You can download uh, all of the Shmoozim, all of the series, etc. So either the site, the podcast, or the or the or the app, you'll be able to access all of the material. And one other thing that's of great interest, at least to me, it is, and I hope it is to you as well, the Shmooz WhatsApp Chizik group. So three or four times a week, we send out these very short inspirational videos. Uh, they're about two, three minutes long, but they're very, very pointed and they're very, very significant. If you would like to get that inspiration to your phone, just send a please subscribe to 845-216-9330. That's 845-216-9330, and we'll put you in the, uh, put you in the group. <coughs> Again, that's 845-216-9330. So the number of ways to access the schmooze. And again, if you like the uh, 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, again, you could, on the Schmooze site, you could access it, uh, or you can go to Amazon. Either way, it's, uh, it is available. Okay, in just a moment, we're going to start. And again, please feel free at any time to type questions in. But again, I will take questions at the end, and I very much encourage actually asking uh, questions. At a certain point, Moshe Rabbeinu has been tried and tried by the Jewish nation, and he turns to Hashem and he says, Hashem, this burden is too great. I can't, why have you made it bad for me? At which point Hashem said, fine. And Hashem said, I'm going to take some of the Ruach HaKodesh from you and give it to the, to the 70 Zakanim. They will also become Nevi'im, and they will also be active leaders in the Jewish nation in that sense. Interestingly, when those 70 leaders gathered, there were two of them who were, felt they didn't belong, they didn't feel they belonged in that machines, so they remained behind. Eldad and Medad remained behind. And when the Ruach, when this prophetic wind was taken from Moshe Benu and given to the 68 of the Zikanim, because Eldad and Medad really belonged in that group, they also began being misnave, and they also began prophesizing. And the Pesach says, Vayar, Vayar Tanar, the Nar, Rashi says that Gershon, Moshe's son, comes running to Moshe Benu, Eldad and Medad are They're saying Nevius, not where they're supposed to. They're in the Machane, they're only supposed to say the prophecy in a particular point, in a particular place. They were in the Machane amongst regular people, they weren't supposed to do that. And Hashem says, don't be Makana to me, Halavai, the entire Jewish nation should be Nevi'im. And while that sounds very innocuous, there was an event that happened there that was to create a tremendous, tremendous impact. You see, Miriam was standing next to Moshe Rabbeinu's wife. And when Gershon comes running and said, Eldar Amedar Anavim Sipora, Moshe's wife says, Oi, I feel terrible for their wives. Because just like my husband became a Novi and he separated from me, and now I feel terrible for their wives, they're, they're going to separate from their wives. When Miriam overheard Tzipporah saying that, she said to herself, wait a minute, 
I'm a Nevi'ah, yet I didn't separate from my husband. Aaron Akoin, my brother, is also a Navi. He's a prophet. He didn't separate from his wife. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu doing this? And Miriam went to complain to Aaron that Moshe Rabbeinu was acting inappropriately, was not acting according to the way the Torah is, because she was a Nevi'ah and she didn't separate. Aaron was a Navi and he didn't separate. And because of that Lashon Hara, Miriam was held accountable. Hashem calls out Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam at one point, and He says to them as follows, Shimunah, please listen. Please listen to my words. If you are Nevi'im, says Hashem to them, and that is true, you see a Nevi'is, you see prophecy in a very occluded, very unclear manner. But that's not the way I speak to Moshe Benu. And Suno explains that Moshe Rabbeinu was given the most unique type of prophecy. Normally, a prophet goes into almost what we'd call an altered state of consciousness, because if he'd be in a fully acute, fully alert sense, there'd be overload, it'd be just too much. His senses would be, he would go insane. So therefore he has to go into an altered state of consciousness. But Moshe Rabbeinu was on such a high madrego, so pure, that he was able to speak to Hashem with full acuity. In his full conscious mind, mouth to mouth, he had that capacity, that holiness, he was able to speak to Hashem that way. And Hashem says, that's the difference between Moshe and you. It's true that you don't have to separate, you could be like regular people. Moshe is a much higher level, and he that's why he has to separate. You're not Moshe Rabbeinu. And then the Pasuk says, Vayichar af Hashem bam. Hashem became angry with them, with Miriam and with Aaron. And because of that, Miriam had saras, she got leprosy, she had to be sent outside the three machanas, and for seven days she remained there. Now, what's interesting about this entire event is that beginning, Hashem starts out by saying, Shimunah, please listen to my words. And Rashi says, why does Hashem start that way? <coughs> Clearly Hashem is angry. And in the end we see, Vayichar Af, Hashem acts with anger towards Miriam. He explains Rashi, Bakasha, Na is a language of please. And Asif Tehichamim explains that Hashem began speaking with them benachas, gently. Why? If Hashem's words would have been with anger, with the appropriate emotion, Hashem's words would not have been heard. Therefore Hashem began softly, please listen to my words, you're not like Moshe, Moshe is a different type of Novi, and only once they heard that, then Hashem became angry, had Hashem become angry first, then His words would not have been accepted by Miriam and Aaron, therefore Hashem began softly. Okay. Now this is a very, very significant Musr lesson, and that is that if you want your words to be heard, you have to make them soft. The Orcha Sadiqim explains to us in Sharakas that it's instant, it's reactive, it's almost beyond a person's capacity. If I come strong against you, if I speak in loud, strong terms, if I'm angry with you, and I speak my words out with anger, it's almost impossible for you to accept it, the natural instinct is for you to resist. The natural instinct is for you to put up your defenses. The minute I come in with anger, with strength, with tremendous emotional charge, automatically your defenses go up. And that's an important Muslim lesson to know, and that is that if you want your words to be accepted, start softly, begin very gently, because the more energy, the more emotion you bring to it, and the more charge you're going to create, and the more resistance you're going to create. Now that would be an interesting Muslim lesson, if it weren't for the fact 
Then it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who's speaking to Aaron and Miriam. And if you think about it, it's rather, rather difficult to understand. <clears throat> what Rashi's saying is, Hashem's words would not have been accepted. Now how could that be? You see, if I say something to you, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe I'm prejudiced. Maybe I have a wrong understanding. But this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the creator of the heavens and earth, is God Himself, saying to Miriam and to Aaron, to great, great Nevi'im, that they're wrong. Now, what Hashem is saying is, you don't have it right. And Moshe is correct, and you're wrong. How in the world is it possible that they wouldn't accept Hashem's words? Hashem would tell them, let's even say Hashem told them with anger, told them with nechari af, how is it possible that they wouldn't accept Hashem's words? We're dealing with such great people, we're dealing with God Himself, how is it possible that they wouldn't accept His words? And I'd like to see if we can understand this Rashi, and understand better what in fact this Rashi is teaching us. And to do that, I'd like to share with you one very important observation. And that is the human being, as in you and I, is a very, very complex entity. And our conscious mind, which alone is not the totality of the person, is very, very difficult to understand because we have different motivations, different thoughts, different feelings, different perceptions. And if you think you understand another person, you surely don't. But I'm willing to bet you most of us don't even understand ourselves. And I'll share with you an interesting example. There's Allah in Shulchan Aruch, A person should attempt to try to do his best to daven in a shul with a tzibur, with a minion. Now, the Mishabur explains why is it that that's Allah. He explains simply, Because Hashem won't find it abhorrent, the tzibur of a tzibur. Meaning, if you daven together with nine other Jews, <coughs> a minion has a certain importance, and therefore Hashem won't find it loathsome, that tefillah, and that's why you should daven with a minion. Now, that is a very difficult halacha to understand. Why? First of all, what do you mean Hashem finds any tefillah loathsome, uh, repugnant? Uh, disc- what, what does that mean? Here's a person <coughs> imploring, beseeching, turning his, to his Creator. Why should Hashem find any tefillah loathsome? That's very difficult to understand. If you'd like to understand the reason for that, I'll share with you a very, very interesting little Musr exercise. The next time you damage Shemana Esrei, I want you, as soon as you're finished, to take out an index card and a pen and write down your thoughts. Write down on that card what your thoughts were during that Shemana Esrei. And when I say your thoughts, I don't mean your holy kavanas and the shameless of Hashem. I mean the outside thoughts about, oh, yeah, i got to pick up the kids, i got to buy this, oh, wait, i got that client, i got to call back. <clears throat> Write down all of those thoughts. Now, it might be a good idea to bring two index cards, because you might well fill out both and maybe need a third. Now, <clears throat> isn't that rather strange? And here's a full disclosure over here. I work on davening. I spend a lot of time working on davening. I've said many shmuzim on davening. I've said many series of shmuzim on davening. And I find the same reality. That many times I'm dominating, speaking to Hashem right there, and a minute later my mind is adrift somewhere else. Now, isn't that strange? I'm standing in front of the King of Kings, God Himself, speaking directly to Hashem, and my mind drifts off to all kinds of different things. And here's the question, gee golly, why? Why can't I just keep my brain where it is? Why do I have such difficulty paying attention? And the reason for that is because I am made of two different very distinct parts. 
Part of me is in a shama, impure and holy, put into a goof, and his body is very thick, and the, it clouds my vision, it blocks my sight, and the most that I'll ever see Hashem is maybe 20%. You see, if I'm speaking to you, I can speak for 20 minutes, for an hour, without losing my train of thought, but that's because you're here. But Hashem, you see, I know it, and my neshama completely, absolutely knows it, but I'm in this body, and I'm blocked, I can't see, I can't think, and in this body I get it maybe 20% at most, because the body has a very real impact, and very much blocks me from seeing things. And that's the first concept, if you want to understand yourself, you have to understand that you're made of two different parts, and part of you in a shama, put into a body, and the body, the Nefesh Bahami, blocks you from seeing things, and blocks you from feeling things, and there'll be many, many things that is going to prevent you from seeing. You will not be able to see your Yom Hamisa. You will not be able to see your death. You know it intellectually, but you'll never feel it. You ever notice that you could hear about someone, and you'll say the words, I feel badly, but you don't really feel it? I want to feel bad, but I don't. I know I should feel bad, but I don't. What you'll find is there are many, many things that I know intellectually, but don't feel emotionally. And again, that's because I'm in this body, and this body occludes, blocks my vision, doesn't allow me to see, and stops me from feeling things in any real way. But that's not the only unusual thing about being a human being. My perception and my judgment is deeply impacted by my moods, feelings, and emotions. Meaning my shura saseichel, my intellect, my clear judgment is greatly biased by the most finicky, fickle sort of things, as in a good mood or a bad mood, or in a feeling good about myself or feeling badly, being happy or being sad. And if you're not quite sure that's true, I'll share with you an interesting little study. It was recently reported in the National Academy of Sciences. They did a study of eight parole judges in Israel. Now, these were judges. This is what they do for a living. And what they do is they review cases that are up for parole. And clearly the issue is very, very grave and very serious because it's determining whether this gentleman is going to spend the next 20 years in prison or he's eligible for parole, will he be let out? Now, the typically the dockets, the cases are randomly assigned to the different judges, and the judges don't have much time to review it. Usually it's about six minutes, they do about ten an hour, and they quickly look at it, weigh the merits, and make a decision. Now, what's interesting to note is that this is very, very controlled. These judges work a straight day. They have three breaks during the day, a mid-morning break, a lunch break, and a mid-afternoon break. And the study was looking to see, was there any impact, whether the judge might have been tired, or the judge might be hungry, would that impact their decisions? So let me give you a little bit of background. Only 35% of the cases that come in front of the judges are granted parole. The vast majority, 65%, are refused. But here was the interesting part. They studied immediately after a break, the rate of approval, meaning the rate of parole, was 65%. And that level went down, 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 until almost the end of the last break. At the end of the next break, the level went down to near zero. Meaning, when the judges were fresh and had eaten, they were very, very lenient, 
And 65% of the first cases that they were presented with, they granted parole. But as the time went on, they got more tired, maybe hungry, <clears throat> and maybe listless. And as it got later and later, it became lower and lower until the very end of that shift, <clears throat> zero percentage. Now here's the interesting part. These are professionals. These are judges. <clears throat> they spent decades studying law, practicing law <clears throat> as, as judges in their role. They understand the gravity of the issues that they're dealing with. We're dealing with a man's future, whether he spends his time in jail or not. And the dramatic difference, we're not talking about like double, we're talking 65% to zero, the vast majority to none, based on this sort of little thing, whether you're tired or hungry. But here's the most compelling part. If you were to ask the judge, do you think, sir, your honor, do you feel that maybe... If you're tired or if you're hungry, it might influence your decision. I'm positive the judge would say, absolutely not. What do you, come on, what do you think, I'm a flighty person? What do you think, I, I don't understand the, the gravity of the situation. I'm going to allow something minuscule like my hunger or fatigue to impact my decision-making process? Yet time after time, it sure did in a major way. And this, I believe, is a very, very telling observation because what it shows us is the amount that minor things like mood or tiredness or different things can influence my perception, my judgment, my decisions. And if you don't think that applies to us, I'll share with you one interesting application. Have you ever gotten angry? If you've ever gotten angry, you might have noticed a very interesting change comes about me. You see, when I get angry suddenly I think differently. I value things differently, and I view things very differently. I might be a very gentle, <coughs> calm person, but when I get angry, I'll say things I would never say when I'm calm. I'll <coughs> speak in manners and say things that are absolutely out of character. But I'm rational. Why am I doing it? Because I think differently, <coughs> I look at you differently, I view the situation differently, and anger greatly influences the way I perceive things. But it's not just the way I perceive things, it's the way I feel. <clears throat> if you ever notice, when you really get angry, your <clears throat> respiration will increase, your blood flow will increase, <clears throat> your heart rate increases, you'll turn either red or white. Because I am now involved in this anger, and this anger radically changes the way I view things. In a previous schmooze, I once described it, <clears throat> if you'd like to understand the I... All you have to do is imagine a family with five school-age kids eating dinner. And immediately after dinner, all five school-age kids vie for the one family computer. Now, based on which child gets control of the keyboard, will determine what the screen shows. If one child wants to do his math homework, they're going to be looking at a math program. If one wants to play a game, they're going to be looking at a game. But all five siblings are watching the screen. And that's what it's like for me. You see, when anger takes over, it takes over my conscious mind. I'm there, but suddenly I'm looking at a different screen. I'm feeling differently, valuing things differently, looking at things differently, because anger has now taken over that keyboard, and now the screen in front of me shows things very differently, and suddenly I feel differently, and I act very differently. And if you're not quite sure I'm right, just watch, watch what happens the next morning. When I calm down and I review the scene, 
And I think back and I say to myself, what in the world was I thinking? What overcame me? How could I have said that? How could I have reacted that way? That's absolutely absurd. How did it happen? How did it happen was I was drunk at the moment anger took over and the moment I saw red and I felt that it was right, proper and appropriate for me to do what I did. But here's the most interesting thing. Let's assume I wake up in the morning after I get angry and now I'm calm and I think back to the things that I said and the things that I did when I was angry and I realize that I was dead wrong. Meaning, imagine I said something, I lost my temper, I said something, and I said some words, and the next morning when I calmed down, I realized I was wrong. I was dead wrong in what I did, and I want to apologize. Here's a very interesting thing. Those thoughts that I thought at the time, that you're a, whatever adjective I'm going to use, you're a blankety blank, whatever it may be, leave an impression on me, and even though I now know that I'm wrong, because I thought those thoughts, they leave an impression on me, there's something there, there's a trace element, and it will change the way that I feel about you, even though I thought incorrectly. You see, when I get angry, those thoughts flash in front of my mind. And those thoughts, I'm thinking them because I'm watching that screen. And even though those thoughts are completely dominated, driven by anger, I'm watching them. It's in my brain, and I'm thinking it, and it leaves an impression, even when I wake up the next day no longer drunk, Realize I was only thinking that because I was angry, but the thoughts that you think impact you, have a real, real Roshim on you. And I believe that's exactly Pshat in Miriam and Aaron. If Hashem had spoken with anger, of course they would have accepted, Hashem said so. But if Hashem spoke initially strongly, there would have been a certain resistance and some level within them. And that would have made an imprint. Hashem is speaking strongly, it's wrong, it's not true. Moshe was really wrong, and it's not true what Hashem is saying. Now, even though in their conscious mind they would have overcome that, and even though in their conscious mind they would have accepted that which Hashem said as true, but there would have been this deep-laying thought of it's not true, and this sort of thing that Hashem is speaking incorrectly, and Moshe was wrong, and that would have made an imprint on them that could have come out later in a different sense, and therefore Hashem began softly. Again, they were tzaddikim of the highest order. They wouldn't have rebelled against Hashem, and Hashem had spoken strongly, and they would have fully accepted it. But on a certain level, there had been resistance. In one voice, they would have been saying, yes, whatever Hashem is saying is true, but within them, there would have been another voice that says, it's not true, I don't accept it. And that would have made an imprint, that would have made an impression, and would have left a imprint on them in a certain way. Now, if you think that is very complex, it is, but that's the human being. We are as complex as Miriam and Aaron, but we don't have to get that deep to see exactly what this Chazal is teaching us. And I'll explain to you what I mean in very simple terms. Anger is dumb. If you say something, I get angry at you, and I break my phone, that's dumb. If I were to get up and punch you, we could debate whether that's clever or not. But if I get angry at you and break my object, that is dumb. And you'll hear all kinds of stories about people doing the most utterly ridiculous, dumb things when they get angry. If any of you are sports fans, you know Michael Tyson. Mike, Mike Tyson was a professional boxer, one of the best in the business. His hands were lethal. And in a fight, he got into a clinch, 
in the in the ring and he bit the ear of his opponent. What do you bite the ear? You have hands that could kill a man. You're biting the ear. Because anger is so foolish and you become so flooded with that emotion that you do things that are very, very dumb. But I'd like to share with you why that is. Psychologists now call it a, an emotional hijacking, the amygdala, the, that part of the brain. <clears throat> when I get angry, what happens is I divert to a much simpler level of thinking. I become flooded, <clears throat> I become emotionally hijacked, and no longer am I making cognitive clear choices. I'm making choices in very limited ways. I'm in that fight or flight mode, I'm in that moment of great peril, because when I feel that I'm under attack, I feel angry, I'm in that mode where I have to make life-saving decisions, at least in my emotional operating mode, and I'm making very limited choices. And what happens is, is that anger shuts the brain off. You see, when I'm angry, I'm not making wise choices because my choices have become so limited. And the reason why we make such dumb choices when we're angry is because when I'm angry, my normal full-functioning brain isn't functioning. I'm using but a minuscule part, I'm using but a very small part, and the reason we make very, very bad decisions when we're angry is because at that moment it seems smart. At that moment it seems right. And if you'd like to see a classic example of this, I'll share with you one that I think should be very, very clear. What happens when someone provokes you? Okay, let's say your children left the house a mess, or your husband left the dirty dishes in the sink overnight, or your wife bounced the check, and you're, f- you're angry, you're furious. Okay, now, what do you do? You tell them, in very uncertain terms, it's absolutely unacceptable, don't do that again, it really gets me angry, and you tell it very clearly. And, as you're saying those words to them, you sincerely, genuinely believe that it's going to get them to change. And the most ironic part is that that is about the worst way to ever get anybody to change. Why? And because the minute I come up against you with this emotional charge, with this anger, the minute I stand up and raise my voice, automatically it's going to cause you to become resistant. Why? Because what happens when I yell at you? Or even if I don't yell, I raise my voice. And what I'm doing is I'm making you feel inadequate, bad, wrong, stupid. You're not going to be very receptive to my message. And the more important this issue to, is to me, and the more I'm going to ratchet up the emotion, and the more powerfully I'm going to say it to you, and the more you're going to feel demeaned, threatened, maybe attacked. But you're surely not going to be very, very warm and fuzzy towards me. So about the worst way to get your message accepted is to emotionally charge it. About the worst way to get anyone to ever listen to you is to say it with anger, with fury, because all it does is creates an absolutely almost impossible for that person to accept your words. It causes an automatic reaction, automatic resistance. And the ironic part is, when I'm saying it, I actually think it's going to help. And I actually think you're going to listen. And you're really going to change your ways. And I do it time after time after time. And at some point you got to say, how could I be that dumb? And the answer is because I'm very dumb when I'm angry. You're going to have 180 IQ. But if you're using one-tenth of it, if you're thinking in extraordinarily limited ways, then guess what? You're going to do things that are very, very dumb. And again, about the worst way to get anyone to listen to your message is to say it with anger, to say it with energy. 
And I have a little acronym that I think is very, very helpful if you'd like to ever get your message across. You see, communication is essential. Whether it be in any relationship, whether it be to a boss, whether it be to an employee, whether it be to a sibling, certainly to your spouse, you need to be able to communicate things. And invariably, there are going to be issues that are delicate, things that have been done or said, and you want to communicate. Now, how do you communicate in a way that's going to allow your message to get across and allow that person to hear? So I have a little acronym that I think is very, very helpful. It's called Be Nice. N means not in the moment of passion. Not when you're angry. And don't say it when you come home and you're furious. Wait. Number two, I. I statements. It bothers me. I'm not pointing your finger. I'm not saying you blew it. You messed up. You're the problem. It bothers me. I feel badly. I'm insulted. I'm embarrassed when we come late. I feel badly. So number one, not in the heat in the moment. Number two, I statements. Number three, C, character assassination is murder. Okay, let's imagine for a minute your wife bounced a check. You know, it just shows me again, you're just irresponsible, you don't care about money, it just shows me the type of person you are. Now, I think that might be a little exaggerated. She, okay, she bounced a check. She's not as careful, she's not as diligent, maybe she's not as alert. Okay, good. But it doesn't show you that she's an absolutely irresponsible person. But I want to explain to you what happens when you say those words. You're forcing her to resist you. Why? Number one, it's not true. She's not totally, absolutely responsible. She doesn't leave the baby in the bathtub. She doesn't forget her responsibilities. So number one, you're forcing her to argue with you because you're not telling the truth. And number two, it's very, very demeaning and very disrespectful, and it's a direct attack on the person. And when you directly attack a person, guess what? They're going to fight back. So number one, and not the heat of the moment... I statements, it's not you, you blew it, you messed up, it's I feel badly, I was embarrassed. C, character assassination is murder. Stick to the topic at hand. I was embarrassed because we were late. Last night we came late and I was embarrassed. I felt badly. That's the issue. If you stick to the issue, you have a shot at maybe the person hearing it. If you start going global and you go all over the place, you have no shot whatsoever. And E, the E of nice is effective communication starts soft. You got to start low and you got to start soft. The minute you're going to come on hard, the minute you're going to speak with anger or with fury or even with just energy, what you're going to do is you're going to cause that person to resist and you're going to force them not to listen. And by the way, this acronym is not just key and essential for me to communicate when I'm angry. What about when you're angry? What happens when either your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your spouse, whatever it may be, is really upset with you? Now, it's clear they're angry. So what do we invariably do? What are you angry with me? What do I do already? What are you so ticked off for? But listen to what I'm doing. I am clearly telling you that I'm innocent. You have a problem. You're angry at me because... But there's no reason for you to be angry at me. And the emotional charge that I put into that equation almost forces you to come... What do you mean? I'll tell you what you did wrong. And before you know it, we're escalating out of control. So I want to tell you the second part to this, and this is really a beautiful, beautiful line. If you ever find somebody angry with you, and somebody's mad at you, and you say as follows, Listen, I've made many mistakes before. It's clear I've done something wrong here as well. 
I don't know exactly what it is. Could you please let me know so I can not do it again? But again, listen to those words. <clears throat> I've made mistakes before. Clearly I've done something wrong here. I don't recognize what it is. <clears throat> please let me know so I could better act in the future. Do you hear the beauty of those words? What I'm doing is <clears throat> I'm opening the doors for you to communicate. Not for you to blast me. <clears throat> not for you to feel attacked by me <clears throat> saying I'm innocent <clears throat> and you're just making up things. I'm open, I'm listening, and you come that way, and guess what? People are then able to respond. And while this may sound obvious, we always do it. I've done it time after time. If you trace your own day, I think you'll find it time after time. It's when I know so clearly that what you did is wrong, and I know so clearly that it's absolutely unacceptable, and I communicate it to you because I want you to change. You have to stop doing that. The minute I ratchet up the emotion, and the minute that I speak with harsh words, I'm begging for you not to hear, because that's instinct, that's human emotion, and that's the way we human beings work. But there's one more step, one more lesson for us to learn from this Rashi, and I think might be equally compelling. If I were given a chance to speak to any Bar Mitzvah boy, I would want to tell him this one message. You are now going live. Meaning, up until now, everything you did when you were 11, when you were 12, was practice. But from this moment on, everything you're going to think, everything you're going to say, everything you're going to do is being written to your hard drive. It's now going to be permanently etched into the essence of you, and permanently a part of you, and it's going to be with you forever. And if I could convey that one message, I believe it would be, and to understand the gravity of your actions, your words, and your thoughts. We don't think about this much, but so much of our religion pivots on our thoughts, because so much of who we are pivots on our thoughts. And Ebenezer says, if you look at Rov mitzvahs, most of the mitzvahs in the Torah revolve around controlling your thoughts, thinking the right thoughts. Why? Because the thoughts that we think directly impact our feelings. And the feelings that we have directly impact our actions because the way you think becomes the way you feel, becomes who you are forever. And the key to it all starts with the thinking. You see, it's rather true. When you're angry, it's very, very difficult to control your anger. But it's a lot simpler to control your thoughts. You see, no one gets angry in the abstract. No one gets angry out of the blue. There's context, there's interpretation, there's a tremendous amount of thinking that goes into my being angry. Who said it, why they said it, when they said it, what mood I was in. I do an awful lot of storytelling and building into it. And when you learn to control your thoughts, you learn to control the way you feel, you learn to control who you are forever. And I believe that that's exactly one of the biggest lessons to learn from this Rashi. You see, as great as Miriam and Aaron were, had they had a thought that Hashem was wrong, even though consciously they wouldn't have accepted it, even though consciously they would have said, of course Hashem is right, but if Hashem spoken strongly against them, on some level there would have been a thought within their brain, even if it was subconsciously, there would have been an etched out thought that Hashem isn't right, Moshe is still wrong, and that thought would have made an impression, because every thought that we think makes an impression, changes me, and changes the way I feel, 
changes who I am. And if you're not sure that I'm right, pick up a very important book that's a very, very recommended book for everyone to read, and that's Dr. David Byrne's book, Feeling Good. And Dr. David Burns, back in the 1980s, was one of the pioneers of the dealing with depression. But how did he deal with depression? He made two very important points. Number one, almost all depression begins with thoughts. And almost all of those thoughts are twisted thinking. You see, it's never that I wake up in the morning depressed. Occasionally, if you have a very real chemical imbalance, there are such situations, but the vast majority of depression comes from thoughts, rumination, things that go through my brain day after day, time after time, again and again and again and again and again. And the point of his book is that your thoughts create your moods, and you can control your thoughts. When you control your thoughts, you control your moods. But you have to be cognizant, you have to be aware of the thoughts that pass. Be aware of the thoughts that pass in front of your mind, and you have to realize that not every thought you think is correct, not every thought you think is accurate, and not every thought you want to allow. And I think this Rashi is pivotal and very eye-opening because it allows us to see, number one, the complexity of the human mind. As great as Miriam and Aaron was, and as much as they would have accepted Hashem's word, and Hashem spoken strongly, they would have accepted it on one level, but somewhere within them, deep within them, there would have been a, it's not true, I can't accept it, because it's, it's too strong. And that little writing to their hard drive would have made a Roshan, would have made an imprint that maybe later on would have come out in a certain way, and therefore Hashem began soft. Hashem said, Shimuna, please listen, because that is the only way to get a person to listen. And the lessons for us are, number one, the impact of our thoughts, but number two, a lot more, how to deal with other people. We all do this all day long. Dealing with other people is something we're constantly involved in, but dealing effectively is something that we rarely do. And the first lesson in human relations is understanding that you are a human being as I am a human being. You have feelings as I have feelings. And it's so strange. I am so sensitive to the way people speak to me, but I never somehow feel that when I'm speaking to them. And why is it? Again, the first reason is because when I become angry, when I become heated, when I become emotionally charged, I become dumb. I'm no longer thinking my full rational brain. I'm no longer clearly thinking it out. What I'm doing is I'm thinking in very limited terms. And right now at that moment, it looks to me intelligent, even though it's the dumbest thing in the world because it's going to make it difficult. If I want to get my message across, number one, not in the heat of the moment. Not when I'm charged, not when I'm angry. And number two, I statements. I'm upset. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm not blaming you. I was embarrassed. I feel bad. And number three, C, character assassination is murder. When I go global, when I start expanding the litany of complaints, what I'm doing is I'm making it impossible for you to accept it. Why? Because it's not true. And more than that, I'm defaming you. I'm destroying the essence of you. And the E is effective communication begins with soft. If you remember this acronym, to be nice, not in the heat of the moment, I statements, and effective communication starts soft, then you're well on the way. There's one other piece to this, and that's to begin everything with a compliment. You see, N means never heat in the moment. I statements, but C, I skipped. 
And C is one of those very, very elusive, very, very strange sort of things. If you would like to get your message across to somebody, and make sure that they like you. Make sure that they know that you accept them. And there's nothing like a compliment to allow a person to hear your words. And I can't tell you how many times I've said this, and I can't tell you how many times I've had guys say, my shaper, that trick doesn't work. I tried on my wife, and the minute I complimented her, she said to me, what do you want now? So I said to this fellow, you got it, exactly. If the only time you compliment your wife is when you want to criticize her, you blew it. But if you begin any statement of complaint with a compliment, and I'll give it, make it very simple. You know, dear, I, I love the way you always take care of things and everything's always, you know, the kids are always well taken care of and they're bathed. And they're, there's just one thing. Do you understand how much easier it is for her to hear those words? Because everyone loves a compliment. Everyone hates criticism. And if you begin it by not in the heat of the moment, I statements, begin with a compliment, and then you start soft, hopefully your lesson, your words are accepted. And that is what I believe we can learn from this Rashi. Okay, I'd like to open the floor now to questions, thoughts, observations. If you're shy, you could type them in. If you're braver, you could raise your hand. Um, Okay, I want to deal with this question because I think it's a very, very um, common question. What happens if when you talk gently, your spouse doesn't take it seriously after various attempts? Unfortunately, I see the only, it's only when I get really upset or lose it, and that's when I feel heard by my spouse and contemplates my comments or opinions. Okay, so let me share with you something very interesting. Um, let's assume what you mean is like this. When you yell and scream, finally your spouse does what you want. You're probably right. It probably is a more effective way to get him to do what you want by acting that way, but I want to ask you, what did you do to the relationship? Meaning, have you ever been screamed at? Have you ever been yelled at? How do you feel towards that person after you were screamed or yelled at? The answer is not very good. So if the only method for you to communicate to your spouse is by yelling or screaming, because otherwise they don't listen, what you're doing is you're effectively communicating that point, but you're losing the war. You're going to win that battle. Your husband will do whatever you want it is that you want him to do. But you're going to wreck your relationship. Why? Because no one likes being spoken to that way. So the simple reality is that if you're at the point where that's the only way you can communicate, it's not going to bode very well. Now, what do you do after a while? You tried, you tried, you said, you said, and he doesn't get it, he doesn't listen. So I have some bad news for you. To be honest with you, there's a certain point where you have to just embrace your spouse as they are. I'll explain to you what I mean. I had a fellow, I was speaking, it was a Shalom Bias uh, Shabbaton, and I was speaking about a number of subjects, and a fellow comes over to me and says, Rabbi, listen, I'm a doctor, I, I work in a hospital, and, and here's the story. There are many young, attractive nurses around, and I don't want to look, but I, I, my wife, she's overweight. We have three kids, and she's overweight, and I've asked her, I told her I'll pay for a nutritionist, and I'll pay for personal uh, for, for a personal coach, whatever you want, I'll take care. She don't do it. She she won't do it. She won't lose weight. Rabbi, what do I do? So I looked at this young man. I said, fellow, I got some good news for you and some bad news for you. You either embrace your wife as she is or you suffer. You see, I don't know of a woman alive who's 40 pounds overweight and says, this is great, I love it. Whatever which reason right now, there's too much on her plate, too much going on, it's not going to work for her. But that's a reality. 
And if you're going to force the issue, the only thing you're going to do is suffer. <clears throat> you either accept her as she is. It's great. You offer whatever opportunities to... But you either accept her as she is or you suffer. And the simple reality is that there's much about being successfully married that demands accepting my spouse as they are, flaws and all. Now, the reason why it's very difficult for me to accept my spouse as they are is because usually it's a strength of mine and a weakness of my spouse that bothers me to the core. We become experts at what our spouse does wrong. And because if I'm very neat, it's almost... I, how She's always sloppy. I don't get her. If I'm always on time, she's always late. Then my nature is my nature. Her nature is her nature. We become experts at what our spouse does wrong. And almost invariably, it circles around my strengths and her weaknesses. And guess what? You're not going to change them. All you're going to do is cause a lot of misery, cause a lot of suffering. So... If you've tried to communicate, and you've tried to communicate, and it doesn't work, if you think you're going to succeed by now yelling and screaming, it's true. You will win that battle, but you will win, lose the war. Because your husband is not going to really like you, your husband's not going to have fond, good memories of you, and you're going to wreck your relationship. At a certain point, you try to communicate, and you explain how important it is, and at a certain point, if it doesn't go, you say the words, okay, it's not going. But how can I live this way? How can... I don't know, you do. But I can't put up with, I can't tolerate. I can tolerate anything but, and everyone's got their, I can tolerate every, anything but, and that but almost always is something that's my strength and my spouse's weakness. So and the bottom line is, I would say to you that um, it's not worth it. It's true that you'll get the job done by screaming, but it's not going to help you. Um, okay. Oh boy, we've got a lot of marriage questions here tonight. Okay. If my spouse speaks disrespectfully to me, should I stay quiet and allow her to get out of frustrations? <clears throat> or should I keep reminding her we don't speak disrespectfully to each other? And <clears throat> I constantly remind her or let her work on herself. She generally She's generally respectful, but I feel these episodes <clears throat> may be damaging. All right, <clears throat> so let me be very clear. You know, being a shmata, being a dishrag, is not a good idea. Um, <clears throat> and it's certainly reasonable and appropriate for you to, you know, to say calmly, uh, I really would appreciate if you speak respectfully. I know you're upset, but I, I don't speak to you that way. I don't, you know, I really don't appreciate if you, you'd speak to me that way as well. Yeah, but... but, 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 but. I, again, yeah, listen, I understand you're upset. I, I get it, but I don't speak to you that way. Please don't speak to me that way. It's really not, you know, it's not really... Now, to be honest with you, different people have different emotional... emotionality, different emotional set points, different triggers... And it could be, you're right, that um, because she's more emotional and it bothers her more, if it if you're able to take it and it doesn't really dig into you, it doesn't really destroy you as a person, you're probably better off taking it for a while. I give a piece of advice to couples always, and that is that it's a very good idea to have a certain point where you say, listen, we're not getting anywhere. We discussed, we talked, but once things start getting heated, Taking a time out is a very good idea, but you have to do this before the time. Before things get heated up, you agree in between that if we feel that we're getting to a certain point, or even if one of us feels that we're getting to a certain point where we're no longer being productive, we're going to call a truce, we'll go to our separate corners, and we'll come back 20 minutes, an hour later. We're not avoiding the topic, we're not letting it slide, but for right now, it's not productive. 
having those kind of ground rules are a very, very good idea because oftentimes what happens is the conversation just escalates and one thing leads to another, leads to another, and and you can't get out of it. Many times just stopping, <clears throat> separating for a little bit, and you go to these separate corners, go to separate rooms, and you think about it, you calm down, and you come back and discuss it. But <clears throat> that has to be ground rules ahead of time. You can't stonewall. You can't just walk out and go, I'm walking out, I'm not talking anymore. It's got to be <clears throat> ground rules that you as a couple set up, that if we get to that point, we're going to call a truce. And even if one of us, we both agree, <clears throat> even if one of us feels, you know, that we're not getting where we both agree that we're going to stop and come back to it. If you set up those ground rules, usually it's a lot, a uh, lot healthier, a lot safer, and a lot, um, a lot better. Um, how does Rebbe explain the Gemara that says truth comes out in kas? Um, I'm not sure what the question is. Um, <clears throat> truth often comes out when a person drinks. Truth often comes out when a person is angry. <clears throat> but what that means is, if I'm hiding something within me. Because I become drunk, I let it out. So, for instance, when let's say I become drunk. So, is that the real me? Uh, I don't think so. It's not the real me. I'm drunk. Now, I may say things when I'm drunk that reveal how I really feel. And I may say things when I'm drunk that let you know what I'm really thinking. But that doesn't mean it's me. Right now, I'm emotionally carried away. I'm drunk. And therefore, my guard is down. My normal inhibitions aren't there. And I'll say things that I normally wouldn't say because oftentimes that's in my heart. But that doesn't mean it's me. And it doesn't mean that once I come back to sobriety, I really, it's a momentary, it's a feeling. Now, it's true that there's some element of truth to it, but not with that intensity, not with that anger, not with that fury, because what happens is I get carried away with it and it becomes much more larger, looms larger, and becomes much more powerful than what I was really feeling or thinking, and the proof of the pudding is when I calm down, I no longer feel that way. Or at least nowhere near to that degree. I'll make it very simple. You call me a blank, blank, whatever it may be, and I got angry. I got angry. Now listen, it wasn't nice what you did, and it was insensitive and callous. But when I got angry, suddenly what you did was a criminal event. You know what you did? How dare you? You know what you said to me? You know. And suddenly what you did takes on super human proportions. It suddenly starts looming larger and larger. Now, is it true that I really feel that what you did was inappropriate? Yes. But the emotionality blows it out of proportion and makes it much, much bigger than it really was. So, yes, truth often comes out in anger, but it's exaggerated truth blown up and out of proportion. Okay. Um, Okay. Okay, how do you gain control of yourself so that you don't get angry in the first place? It feels instant, like there are no thoughts before. It's so easy to lose it. Okay, so first of all, I recommend a Shmuz number 30, Anger Management. <clears throat> One day, believe that I'll do a series on it. But listen, if you get a chance, go to the Shmuz.com, go to the Shmuz podcast, <clears throat> go to the Shmuz app, listen to Shmuz number 30, Anger Management. I spent a lot of time in that Shmuz <clears throat> describing exactly how to work on anger. And the key in the work on anger is mostly in the brain, mostly in your thoughts. Um, and so I, I don't want to give a, a pat answer. Um, and one thing I'll tell you for sure, the happier you are, the less anger you feel. Meaning, <clears throat> my Rebbe Roshiva Zetzal once gave a good muscle. Let's say I just won the lotto. $264 million, wow! And you step on my toe. I would hug you, oh, it's great, wonderful. 
Why? <coughs> because I'm ecstatic, I'm happy. The more simcha <coughs> sachayim you have, the more you're able to be solve things, let things bother you. <coughs> Typically, one of the signs of depression is a quick temper, is angry. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you that that's the only cause, and it's not necessarily a sign, but in general terms, <coughs> simcha sachayim is a huge, huge factor in not getting angry, but there's a whole other <coughs> piece of working on it. And again, Shmuz number 30, anger management, you listen to that, and I think I go through it pretty much in detail. Hopefully that, that'll be helpful. Um, <coughs> what is the E in nice? Thank you. Um, so the N is not in the moment. <coughs> I is I statements. C is compliments. And E, I cheated. Effective communication starts soft. I didn't have an E for start soft. So I used effective communication starts soft, meaning start gently, emotionally calm. <coughs> because the harder you start out, and the stronger you start out, the more difficult you're making it for the other person to hear. The slower and the more calm, the softer you start, the easier it is for the other person to be macabre. Because it's just invariable. That's human nature. If I come on strong, you resist because you feel I'm attacking you, I'm hitting you. It's like I'm punching you. So, of course, if I'm punching you, you almost have no choice but to punch back. All right. Um, Oh, you're right, you're right, right, all right. C was double used. Character attack is is no good and compliment. You're right. Um, okay, I apologize. I apologize. I I really I came up with this acronym when I wrote the book. Um, I, I forgot. <laughs> I apologize. You're right. It's also a big you so uh, character assassination is is murder. You're right. That's what I said. I just said it over. I now realize I blew it. Okay, we got to put two C's in there. Nice. But it, it, it's it's true anyway. Character assassination is murder and compliments first. So um, the acronym, really, the way I did it, wrote in the book was compliments first. But good good catch. Okay, again, if you'd like a copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes that very smart couples make, there's a pre-publication copy. It's not in the stores yet. It's not published yet. Um, hopefully it'll be out, I hope, in Mitzvah Shem by Rosh Hashanah. But if you'd like a pre-publication copy, you can go to Amazon or you can go to the schmooze.com, T-H-E, shmuz.com on the banner you'll see a place you could just click and order it um, also if you'd like to access the schmooze on the podcast or app or the schmooze.com you can access all the other schmoozim especially anger management number 30 also if you'd like to get the schmooze be a part of the schmooze whatsapp chizik group three four times a week we send out these short inspirational videos if you'd like to be a part of that send it please subscribe to 845 845- Two one six nine three three zero eight four five two one six nine three three zero. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos and see you next week.